Welcome to the March of History. I am your host, Trevor Furness. Brendan, my co-host, will not be here today. Unfortunately, we're still having terrible issues with the Wi-Fi at my apartment here in Spain. We are working on getting the landlord to fix it, but she seems to be in no rush. So, Brendan will be back. We just don't know exactly when, whenever we get the Wi-Fi fixed here. Now, a note from the previous episode, I realized after listening back to it that I sometimes refer to one of Caesar's provinces as Further Gaul, other times as Transalpine Gaul. These are different names for the exact same province. There is no difference. But I realize that for new listeners to Roman history and to Caesar's life, this may be confusing. So in the future, though they're essentially synonyms, I will try my best to be consistent and say only Transalpine Gaul, but just know if I do slip up and say Further Gaul, I'm referring to Transalpine Gaul, the same province. Also, I did some additional research and found out there's different ways I noticed that people say what I've been calling the Helvetii, or the anglicized version is Helvetian. I've noticed other people say in either their podcasts or YouTube videos or documentaries, Helveti or Helvetii. To be honest, it's tough to figure out which was the correct pronunciation. So I'm going to call them the Helveti from now on because I think that seems to be right, Helveti, rather than Helvetii. So again, if you hear me change my pronunciation of that word, I do apologize, but I'll try to be consistent and say Helveti from now on, even though in previous episodes I had said Helvetii. Now, on to episode 24. Just to recap a little bit about episode 23, though, we left off with Caesar blocking the Helveti now. Now we're calling them Helveti. With Caesar blocking Helveti and stopping them from crossing into his province of Transalpine Gaul, and the Helveti having to turn around and take the more arduous path through mountains that was very dangerous to them through other tribes' territories in order to reach their destination. But this new path that they would be taking would still lead them to the borders of Transalpine Gaul. And as you can imagine, Caesar is having none of that. But before we pick up our narrative again, I want to talk to you and tell you a little bit about Caesar's relationship with his troops in Gaul. Because this is one of the most, or possibly the single most legendary bond between soldier and commander in all of history. And it deserves to be talked about in detail. Throughout their time in Gaul, Caesar and his soldiers would form a legendary bond. Caesar often referred to his soldiers as comrades rather than soldiers. And later, during the time of the empire, Augustus, who was the first emperor of Rome and who was no military man, would forbid this practice. He deemed it too informal and felt that soldiers referring to him or him referring to soldiers as comrade lacked the respect due to him and his family. He also felt that it was too flattering to the soldiers, who he insisted on referring to simply as soldiers. And Augustus' thinking on this was probably in line with most Roman commanders and aristocrats. This is what made it so exceptional, though, when somebody as high-born and powerful and talented as Julius Caesar should deign to call his soldiers comrades rather than soldiers. Caesar's troops were fanatically loyal to him. In a way, no Roman general in the past or perhaps no general in history had ever experienced, or even to this day has ever experienced. 
Much like the soldiers of Marius and Sola in the previous generation, Caesar's legions would come to see themselves as soldiers of Caesar first and foremost, and soldiers of Rome second. And I would say Caesar's legionaries were even more devoted to their commander than the soldiers of Marius or Sola had been. All his life, Caesar had the ability to charm and win over the common people, particularly those of humble birth and little resources. And by this point in Rome's history, most of the Roman military is made up of these same poor peasants. And so much time exposed to Caesar's charisma and charms would leave them utterly devoted to their commander in a way that Rome had not seen before. Plutarch, one of our ancient primary sources, says, quote, He, meaning Caesar, was so much master of the goodwill and hearty service of his soldiers that those who in other expeditions were but ordinary men displayed a courage past defeating or withstanding when they went upon any danger where Caesar's glory was concerned. End quote. So Plutarch essentially says that soldiers who were just average, normal, everyday soldiers in other campaigns when it came to Caesar's army and when it came to expeditions that concerned Caesar's honor, performed like Medal of Honor recipients. And Plutarch goes on to talk about how generous Caesar was with his soldiers when it came to the spoils of war and giving out honors. In fact, rather than keeping the spoils for himself, Caesar spread them widely among his soldiers. And by doing this, he proved to his soldiers that they were not fighting Caesar's personal war for personal luxury. Rather, all the spoils that they won were set aside as an almost public fund to be used for his soldiers in reward for valor and bravery and selfless service to the legions. The ancient sources even say that Caesar saw the funds he gave to his soldiers as increasing his own riches rather than depleting them, which is a very novel concept, especially when you examine ancient commanders and how they typically behaved, or even wealthy elites today. How many CEOs do you know that try to put money in the pockets of their workers and they see that as enriching themselves? Probably not many. And this is what made Caesar so exceptional to his soldiers. They had never encountered a Roman aristocrat like this before. Plutarch also says that there was no danger or toil which Caesar would exempt himself from. In other words, he faced all the hardships he asked of his troops and experienced all the same dangers he placed them in. And for this, they loved him. And Plutarch goes on to say, quote, His contempt of danger was not so much wondered at by his soldiers because they knew how much he coveted honor, but his enduring of so much hardship, which he did to all appearance beyond his natural strength, very much astonished them. For he was a spare man, had soft and white skin, and was distempered in the head and subject to an epilepsy, which, it is said, first seized him in Cordoba. But he did not make the weakness of his, con- of his constitution a pretext for his ease, but rather used war as the best physic against his indispositions. Whilst by indefatigable journeys, coarse diet, frequent lodging in the field, and continual laborious exercise, he struggled with his diseases and fortified his body against all attacks. End quote. And for those that find these ancient sources a bit tough to understand, because I completely understand how they can be, what Plutarch is saying there is that Caesar amazed his troops by 
his endurance, despite his what they thought as hardened veterans of the legions, he seemed to have a frail, pale-looking body. He had epilepsy. And yet, despite all these things, he did not let any of that get in the way. Rather, he made sure to constantly be physically active, constantly be mentally active, and by doing so, use those as his remedy to his physical ailments. Almost kept himself in such good shape, in such good mental shape, that that's what kept at bay all these physical ailments that he had, rather than using them as an excuse to lay low and, and not participate in all the activities that the troops were doing. And again, they loved him for these things. But this fanatical devotion, this love fest between commander and ordinary soldier, didn't form on Caesar's first day of taking command of the provinces. It took years of hard work, endless toil, and many dangers faced to form this relationship. Caesar had to prove to his soldiers repeatedly that he had their best interests at heart. He had to prove to them that he was capable enough to put them in situations where they could win and survive. He had to prove to them that he wasn't going to throw their lives away on stupid gambles. And this last point is despite him pitting them against some of the most extraordinary odds Rome had ever seen. But he had to build confidence in them or have them build conf- or have them gain confidence in himself that despite these crazy gambles and these extraordinary odds he was pitting them against that they would still come out on top, that they could trust him to know that these were seemed ex- like extraordinary odds, but were something that they could surmount. But no amount of words or charm would convince an army of hardened veterans that these things were true. Caesar had to show them with his actions. He had to work harder than any of them. He had to expose himself to danger time and time again for their benefit. He had to demonstrate a fearless example in the face of the enemy, and things had to turn out the way Caesar told his soldiers that they would. For example, if he told them that, hey, we're fighting an enemy twice our size, but we can win, he had to actually win. Otherwise, all of this faith that they're building in him would be shattered. And at the time that the Helvetii are attempting to migrate across Europe, Caesar has not yet won their trust or loyalty. They're still just getting to know each other, the soldiers and the commander. You have to understand these legions would have a different commander every year going back for decades or even longer. And the way they probably viewed the situation was commanders come and commanders go. Governors come and governors go. And they were probably just hoping to get a governor that was not stupid enough to get them killed during his year in office and then will be gone and out of their hair. After all, Rome had no shortage of military inept governors. This was a legacy that came from putting aristocratic politicians at the heads of armies. And at this point in our story, Caesar has a long way to go. A long way to go to prove to his soldiers that he is not another inept aristocrat. He has a long way to go to build their confidence in themselves and in him, to prove that he would look out for them and take care of them, to prove that he was not all talk, and to show them that he valued their lives as much as his own. And Caesar is very much aware of all of these things. And you can see it in the caution in which he maneuvers his legions in the early stages of his time in Gaul, and you can see it in the tactics that he uses to fight the enemy. And when we come to those parts, I'll point those out to you as well. But that's all I have to say for now on the relationship between Caesar and his troops. 
as we go through the story, both the war in Gaul and the future civil war, you will see time and time again. Well, I mean, you can actually watch and see as the relationship forms because it's not it's not always this fanatic loyalty that his soldiers show him. He has to gain this over time, and you can see little by little as they begin to have more and more faith in him that you know eventually by the end they just have unquestioning loyalty and unquestioning devotion and unquestioning belief in him and what he wants to accomplish. But back to the Helvetii. So you remember I said the Helvetii took the longer and more arduous route and more dangerous path to their destination because Caesar had demolished the bridge through Geneva and he had tricked them and told them to come back in two weeks. They came back and, whoa, Caesar had built a wall on the river. How did it notice this? I don't know. I guess they weren't scouting very carefully. But Caesar had blocked them, so they were forced to turn around. A few of them tried to force their way over the river, and Caesar was able to block them. He didn't really have enough troops to man the entire wall, I do believe, but he had enough troops to focus on these random attacks on the walls since it wasn't the entire Helvetian people. But this new route that the Helvetii take is so narrow at times that their wagons can hardly pass in single file. It's through the mountains, it's dangerous, it's through enemy tribes, it's very difficult. But like I said before, the new route leads them right up to another border with Transalpine Gaul. And Caesar says in his commentaries that this region of Transalpine Gaul is important, mainly due to its food production, and that it was largely undefended. So it's an important food production area for the province, and it's largely undefended. And of course, Caesar had no intention of allowing what he describes as a hostile nation to pass so close to the province while it's undefended. So Caesar puts his legate, Titus, I don't know how to, so I'm debating how to pronounce this guy's name, Titus Labienus or Titus Labienus. I've heard both. Labienus is obviously the less laughable name, but I think Labienus is the more correct one. So for now, we'll call him Titus Labienus, but we may change that in the future if I find a credible source that says it should be pronounced Labienus. But anyway, he puts Titus Labienus in charge of the fortifications in Geneva, the ones that he had just built, the wall along the river, and Caesar leaves. He then force marches his way from Transalpine Gaul to northern Italy. And in northern Italy, he scoops up his other three legions and raises a two additional legions, the 11th and 12th legion. Now, here's an important point. Only the Senate could order a governor to raise new legions. Governors could not do this of their own accord. Well, what do you think Caesar did? Did he ask the Senate? Absolutely not. Caesar did not ask the Senate's permission. This is Caesar we're talking about. He does not care about rules and laws. He breaks them left and right. But from Caesar's perspective, he is facing a crisis in the form of 92,000 warriors and 368,000 people total heading for his province. He may have felt that there was no time to get approval from the Senate. He would have had to send a messenger down there. He would have had to have waited for the next Senate meeting. They would have had to have debated it. Most likely, the Optimates would have blocked him at every turn, and by that time, it would have been too late. So he may have felt like, hey, I have no choice, I just need to act, which is understandable, still against the law, but understandable. Regardless, I doubt that he thought about it too hard. Like I said, after all, bending and breaking rules is Caesar's specialty. But here's another key point. Since the Senate had not approved these legions, 
the Senate in Rome would not pay for them. Caesar would need to provide for them via his own province's funds and via his own personal funds. That means that he would have to provide for them food required to feed these thousands of soldiers. He would have to provide all the material required to arm and supply them, and he would have to pay the soldiers their expected wages. Now, it may seem perfectly like an okay thing that the Senate says, well, we're not going to pay for them if we didn't commission them. But here's the reality. If the Senate's not paying them and Caesar's the one paying them, then don't you think that it just increases their loyalty to commander over a country all the more? Now these armies literally are Caesar's personal armies, not just in feeling, but in pay as well. What's more, these new troops that Caesar raises are likely from Cisalpine Gaul. It's one of Caesar's provinces. This meant that they were likely not Roman citizens and therefore not eligible to serve in the legions. But during Caesar's time as governor, he would consistently treat the people of his provinces, that's Illyricum, that's Cisalpine Gaul, that's Transalpine Gaul, as if they were Roman citizens with all the rights that entailed. Of course, these new soldiers and the people of the provinces would not forget this kindness Caesar had shown them. And it's one more instance of how Caesar earned such legendary loyalty from his soldiers. But again, the consistent theme, Caesar is gambling by being so high-handed with the Senate and ordering the raising of these legions without their permission. Caesar then takes the now five legions that he has on him and he marches them back towards Transalpine Gaul. But on the way, they have to pass through the Alps. Now, any map of this period, you will see if, if Rome is shaded as red on the map, that a lot of the area of the Alps looks like it's part of the Roman Empire. But I think Brendan had this point in, in previous episodes. These maps never show the reality of the situation. That certain areas are ungovernable. Other areas are breakaway independent kingdoms. It just shows this kind of general red that covers the map. And this is one of those cases, because the people of the Alps are largely unconquered despite being surrounded by Roman provinces. They live in these tall mountains. They're very tough to get at. Rome doesn't see much of a point in waging war on them, since it would be very tough. It would be a literal uphill battle. And what would they gain? It wouldn't be any rich farmland. It wouldn't be any rich resources. Rome sees no point. But these tribes that, like I said, are largely independent, don't take kindly to Caesar cutting through their territory with soldiers. And they set several ambushes for Caesar and his troops as they march through the Alps. Now, Caesar and the legions are largely able to repel these ambushes and pretty much all make it through the Alps unscathed. But this is an early danger for Caesar and the legions. But like I said, Caesar guides them through well. He gets them through unharmed, which a more inept commander may not have done. This is where the trust-building process is coming in. Now, they can now see that, hey, we've had past inept commanders. You know, the guy the year before, the guy three years ago definitely would have led us into that trap. Caesar got us around it. So they're starting to get a feel for who he is and that they can trust him. They then arrive back in Transalpine Gaul and link up with the one legion that's still there with Caesar's main legate, Titus Labianus. Now Caesar has a total of six legions comprised of about twenty-five to 30,000 men total. That's not per legion, that's the total of the six legions is about twenty-five to 30,000 men. 
He also has Roman allies that raise cavalry for them, and that's about 5,000 men. Rome typically focused on its infantry and relied on allies, in this case, allied Gallic peoples, to raise cavalry for them. And now Caesar begins to receive pleas for help from some of Rome's allies, including a tribe called the Idui. They are an old and longtime ally of Rome, though they are not, as far as I know, I believe I'm writing this, they are not part of a Roman province. They're kind of like one of the satellite states just outside of Rome's province, Transalpine Gaul. I could be wrong about that, but I think I'm right. And the Idui complained to Caesar that they had given the Helvetii permission to move through their territory, yes. But once the Helvetii had got into these tribes' territories, the tribes said, quote, everything but their land had been taken from them, end quote. And that's a quote direct from Caesar that he attributes to not the Idui in this case, but it was another tribe that had come and complained to him. Basically, they said that they had made this deal with the Helvetii, yes, come through our territory, don't destroy anything, don't take anything, and we'll let you th- pass through peaceably. The Helvetii got in there and just stole everything that wasn't fixed down from the province, ransacked different areas. Some tribes claimed that they were burning buildings. So these tribes are not happy, and they are allies of Rome, so they're going and complaining to their chief protector and ally, which is Rome. And Caesar is representative of Rome in this case. Of course, all this is exactly what Caesar had been aiming to avoid in his province. He didn't want to let these guys through because no matter what they promised, he knew there would be ransacking, there would be pillaging, there would be stealing, and there would be raping. And he wanted no part of that in his province, and here they were doing it to allies of Rome. So it seems that Caesar was right in refusing the Helvetii passage through Transalpine Gaul. Of course, our main source for all this is Caesar himself. So it's always possible he's just justifying his actions after the fact by playing up a few egregious cases that happened while the Helvetii crossed these allies' territories. But apparently the allies were feeling it enough to come and complain to Caesar. So I don't think that Caesar's making it up in this case. Well, Caesar then cites this destruction and theft of allied property as his context to justify his next actions. At this point, the Helvetii are busy crossing the Seon River. The river at this point where they're crossing is wide and deep enough they need boats to ferry themselves across. And of course, with 368,000 people to ferry, this is a very long process. What's more, they're not an organized army marching on campaign. They're just a great general mass of people all heading to generally the same direction. Order and discipline is no doubt lacking. And in Adrian Goldsworthy's book, Caesar, Life of the Colossus, he makes the continual point that these people probably weren't marching in one giant mob. They were probably strung out in little independent groups for miles and miles and miles only coming together when they got to some point like this river that was a choke point, and they all grouped up like that. So Caesar, after getting the plea from these allies, now ventures out of his province of Transalpine Gaul to find the Helvetii and encounters them at this exact moment as they're crossing this river. And just a side note, of course, it was just such behavior, governors running out of their province to go find wars and glory and money to fight, that Caesar's law restricting governor's actions had been designed to protect or to prevent. Caesar apparently was not to be restricted by his own laws and just goes ahead and walks right outside the province. 
Now, the justification that he gives is that this is in Rome's self-interest. This is Rome's best defense interest for him to put down this wandering tribe of barbarians that are very warlike, as he would describe them, and very hostile to Rome, and had shown that they were hostile to Rome in past instances, and to take them out and to put them down before they end up attacking Rome when Rome's not expecting it. And when Caesar arrives at the Helvetii and he sees them crossing this river, about three quarters of them had crossed the river at that point. And Caesar's on the part of the bank where there's only a quarter of the Helvetii still there, or Helvetii still there. And so, of course, being any or any competent commander would say, this is the perfect time to attack. And Caesar's more than a competent commander, so he plans a surprise attack. And he leads his troops out before dawn, and he falls on the remaining one-fourth of the Helvetii. And his attack catches them off guard and encumbered by wagons and women and children and stuff of personal belonging. And, you know, this is, again, this is not an army on campaign. These are families. These are people moving across Europe. This is, they're not ready to fend off an attack like this. And Caesar himself in the commentary says the Romans, quote, killed a great number, end quote, which is the ominous understatement of, well, I would say of a millennium, but he's got greater understatements than that. In other words, it was a massacre. The Roman soldiers just massacred these people. I Caesar, Caesar doesn't say, but I imagine they made little distinction between man, woman, and child. This was the ancient world. This was brutal. Now, it should be said that the Gauls, the Helvetii, had they found a group of Roman men, women, and children in the same circumstance, would have done the exact same thing. They were just playing by a different, more ruthless set of, of rules than we are used to today. Of course, Caesar and his legions are not able to catch every single one of the Helvetii or Helvetii on their side of the bank, and a number of them do escape into the woods. Now, Caesar in his commentaries further justifies this attack by telling his audience, who's going to be all the senators and aristocrats and the general people of Rome, that the one-fourth of people he had slaughtered had been called the Tigurini. And the Tigurini were one of four groups that made up the Helvetii, or Helvetii. <laughs> and who are these Tigurini? Well, it had been the Tigurini, according to Caesar, who had delivered the defeat to the Romans where they had killed a consul and marched the Roman army under the yoke and so embarrassed Rome a generation before. And Caesar tells his audience that the defeat has now been avenged by him, by Caesar. Essentially, these were the people that had attacked a Roman army by surprise, that had killed a Roman consul, that had humiliated the Romans by forcing their army to march under the yoke, which was really originally a Roman practice to do that to their enemies. And then here the Helvetii or Helvetii had turned it on their head and made the Romans do it. And so Caesar had gone and avenged this because this particular group, this Tigurini, had been the group that had done this to Rome. He also further says that this vengeance had had personal significance to him, to Caesar. He says that his father-in-law's grandfather had been a legate in the defeated Roman army that had been killed by the Tigurini, and that this grandfather of his father-in-law had been killed at that same battle. So avenging Rome's defeats and avenging the deaths of family members, these are two motivations that the Romans could really get behind. 
So Caesar knew how to play to his audience. Caesar then puts that famous engineering ability of the Roman legions to work. He has his army construct a bridge across the river and promptly marches them across in pursuit of the Helvetii. Now, it had taken the Helvetii 20 days to get three-quarters of their people across the river at great difficulty. No doubt it would have taken even longer had they gotten the remaining fourth across as well. Now, Caesar's army is able to build a bridge and cross the river all in one day. That is Roman efficiency at its finest, and that reminds me of the opening scene in Gladiator where you see the contrast of the disorganized Germanic barbarians versus the well-run oiled machine that was the Roman legions fighting against them. And this just kind of reminds me of that because here you have these these Gallic peoples, these Helvetii crossing the river on boats. It takes them 20 days to get three quarters of their people across. Granted, they have a lot more people than Caesar, but Caesar and his legions are able to build a bridge in one day and cross over in one day. And that brings me to a little side point. I just want to talk about Caesar's legions and their engineering ability, because this is a recurring theme that we will see again and again and again during his time in Gaul and during the civil wars. You see, institutional knowledge of engineering was one of the key strengths that made the Roman military so great. And many times they could defeat an enemy army purely through their superior knowledge of engineering. But Caesar's armies routinely built astounding feats of engineering, even in comparison to other Roman armies. And they did so in such short time periods that he confounded his opponents and amazed his contemporaries. At times in the commentary, Caesar will spend large amounts of time describing ancient engineering projects such as ramparts, bridges, and, and other such things in detail. His knowledge of these projects and his desire to spend so much time telling his audience about them, to me, shows that he took personal interest and pride in them and genuinely enjoyed engineering. And I wouldn't even be surprised if he was heavily involved in these engineering projects. But back to our story with the Helvetii, like I said, this was an astounding feat of engineering in the ancient world. And the Helvetii were duly shocked and terrified and impressed by this show of efficiency and know-how. And they quickly sent envoys to Caesar to try to come to an agreement. But the man that they send to lead this delegation is named Devico. And Devico was the leader of the army that had delivered Rome its defeat a generation earlier. So apparently not all those people have been killed yet. Maybe this guy was riding up with the leadership and had been ahead of his people. Who knows? But DeVico is leading this embassy that comes to Rome to request peace. But you got to wonder what kind of message are the Helvetii trying to send when they send the guy who is the architect of the Roman humiliation to lead their peace envoy. In my opinion, the message is, hey, we've defeated you in the past. We can do so again. This guy's a reminder of it, but you can do the math. Now, DeVico tells Caesar that they are willing to settle their people wherever Caesar sees fit. However, he adds that Caesar should remember the defeat the Helvetii had delivered the Romans and how fierce an enemy they could be. He says to Caesar that Caesar had taken only a quarter of their people 
And he'd done it by surprise when the rest of the people could not help them out because they had been on the far riverbank. And based on this, DeVico tells Caesar he shouldn't credit his own bravery too much. He tells Caesar the Helvetii fight with courage, not with cunning or with trickery. And finally, DeVico ends his speech with an ominous threat. He warns Caesar not to let the ground they were currently meeting on to win future fame by being a place where a Roman army was wiped out. I love some ancient trash talk. It's great. All these meetings between Caesar and barbarian kings or barbarian leaders always go this way with both, both sides, especially the barbarian side talking a lot of trash. Now, of course, Caesar probably includes a lot more of what they say and the trash talking that they do to fire up his Roman audience and to get them on his side, but it's still fun to read. Now, how do you think Caesar would respond to such a speech? Hmm. Caesar essentially replies that he has not forgotten anything about these past defeats, nor has he forgotten how recently the Helvetii had attempted to one, force their way into his province when he had said no, and two, committed crimes against the allies of Rome. Despite all of this, Caesar is willing to make a deal with them for peace. But the conditions for this peace were that the Helvetii hand over hostages and that they pay reparations to Rome's allies for all the property they had stolen or destroyed. And just to explain the hostages thing, for those who are unfamiliar with the way the ancient world worked, was... Oftentimes, when one power defeated another power, they would demand hostages. Now, these were just not just any people. They were the typically sons of rich and powerful aristocrats, and they would be raised in Rome and educated by Romans. And if that tribe or if those people ever did anything bad and rose against Rome, Rome had their kids and could just kill them, which was essentially the future of their tribe, the future leadership. What's more, if the people didn't rise up, eventually when these people came of age, these hostages, they would be given back to their people. But now they'd be given back to the people with a Roman education, with an understanding of Rome, with a, a fluent ability to speak Latin, and they would likely be much less hostile to Rome considering that they were raised among Romans, that all their friends are Romans, and they really understand the culture – in fact, they could even end up being or feeling like a foreigner among their own people when they finally do go back. It's an ancient, ancient practice. And even Alexander the Great's father, Philip, had been raised this way when, I don't know how he ended up as a hostage, but he was raised among, I want to say Thebes, but I'm not certain, but he was raised among a foreign people as a hostage. This is common, and in the ancient world, it was a great practice. It had a lot of benefits for them. Now, DeVico replies to this, and he says that the Helvetii were accustomed to receive hostages, not to surrender them. And after saying this, he immediately storms off. If Caesar was looking for a war, it seems that he now has one. But what other choice does he really have? It's not as if there are large tracts of fertile land just sitting around emptying gold that Caesar can plant these people in. Whatever land they want has to be taken from somebody else. And Rome, if they ever resettle anybody in their provinces, they don't do it by putting them all in one area together where they can be a pocket of power and resistance within the empire. They spread them out among the empire, which, of course, I'd imagine the Helvetii are not willing to do. But that's where we're going to end today with the Helvetii envoys storming off and saying that they're more accustomed to receiving hostages and not surrendering them. And we will pick up 
where we left off in next episode, where Caesar continues to stalk the Helvetii, but soon an intertribal conspiracy threatens to end his campaign early altogether. But like I said, we'll talk about that next time. But before we actually end the podcast, if anybody's interested, I figured I really haven't given any updates on how things are going in Spain. And for those who are around the world in some form of lockdown or other, I thought you might appreciate hearing what Corona is like in Spain and, and how COVID-19 is affecting us. So I had come here with all sorts of plans to travel and see different areas that Caesar had been to. Of course, I've been here for, what, two months now, but we're already on lockdown. We're unable to leave the city of Huelva at all, unless it's for work, which I do, what, a few times a week I leave for work. But as of right now, we can't travel outside the city on weekends uh, or for any fun purpose. We're just locked down in the city. We're not locked down in our apartment, so we're allowed to walk around the city and explore the city, which is good. It's much better than what I heard Spain had in their lockdowns last time where you were stuck in your apartment unless you had, you know, it was your day to go get groceries. It's nothing like that, but they do have a curfew where all restaurants and all public places have to close by 6 p.m. and all people have to be indoors by 10 p.m. Uh, I think it's from 10 to 6 is the curfew. So it's been interesting. You know, I hear friends in the U.S. say it's not nearly so restrictive there, though I see the U.S. numbers and <laughs> I, uh, I wonder if it should be. But, you know, I understand the debate between the economy and, uh, and public health as well. So I'm not going to wade into that one. But I just want to give you guys an update on what's happening here. Eventually, things will reopen in Spain and I'll be able to get to more areas and take more pictures and who knows, maybe start a YouTube channel and do some, you know, kind of documentary type stuff of the different areas Caesar fought in. That would be really cool. But right now we're sitting tight and waiting for the Corona restrictions to lift, which hopefully should be soon, maybe even in, in December. But as of right now, they show no sign of lifting. And one more thing before I go or before we end this episode, please, if you listen on the Apple Podcast Store, leave us a review on the Podcast Store, share the podcast with others, regardless of what platform you listen to it on. Uh, go ahead and subscribe, follow our Instagram at the March of History, that's at the March of History, Twitter's at March underscore History, and the Facebook, if you go ahead and search the March of History is a great format or they're all great formats for listeners to meet each other, to interact with each other, to interact with your host and co-hosts, uh, just to see you know what we're up to, what we're planning for the podcast. And on the Instagram, I have lots of pictures and videos of interesting historical content, some related to Caesar, some of it not, but it, it's all history related and all travel related. So I think you guys will enjoy it. And if you want to email us with any feedback on the podcast or any questions or, or anything at all uh, it is the march of history at gmail.com and that's it for today so i'm going to wrap things up and i will see you next time on the march of history <laughs>